Could you turn your Bibles once again, please, to Luke 24? In my way of thinking, this church is missing something very important, a graveyard. Part of the reason I say that is because in the church where I grew up, when you sat in the pew and looked out the window, you didn't see houses or a parking lot. Where I grew up, in the church where I grew up, you looked out the window, you saw a graveyard. And that was a powerful statement because having a cemetery immediately adjacent to the church was a continual reminder of that stark contrast, that thin line between life and death. On one side of the windows was life, people singing, worshiping God, ministering to one another. But literally, within just a few steps, was a stark reminder of the silent stillness of death. And so when I look out the windows here, it strikes me as odd. In a way, I wish there were a graveyard outside these windows because it would help to remind us of an important truth we're going to consider today. And here is that truth. For those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, life does not end at the grave. Even though these bodies will one day experience death, and mark it, that is true for every single person here. No one is exempt from death. We may try to ignore it. We may try to think, not think about it, but it is coming for each and every one of us. But for those who put their faith in Christ... Just as the grave could not hold Jesus Christ, neither can the grave hold those who believe in him. Our key text for today occurs in the resurrection account of Luke. And he records a question spoken by an angel who asks this, Why do you seek the living? among the dead. And the way I hear that question, I hear it said with a tone of incredulity, meaning, why are you looking for the living among the dead? You see, the angel knows that the grave could not hold Jesus Christ. He is the creator. He's the author of life. And the angel knows that God could not be defeated by death. And so from the angel's perspective, it was absurd to look for Jesus among the dead. The grave could not hold him. For those who believe in him, the Lord Jesus promises that we too will share in his victory and we will have everlasting life. Amen? Amen. Let's look at the text as we begin our study. Let's go, please, to Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 1. 
Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened. As they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they, the angels, said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Luke tells us it is the first day of the week. That means it is the day that we now call Sunday, this very Sunday. But this is not just any Sunday. It is the Sunday after the Passover. And it is also now the third day following the crucifixion of Jesus. And we know from earlier in Luke's account that Jesus was placed in a borrowed tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea. Because the previous day was the Jewish Sabbath, which, that's Saturday, but the Sabbath begins on sundown on Friday, the day that Jesus was crucified, the followers of Jesus were unable to finish the preparations of Jesus' body because work had to cease at sundown. So now, on this Sunday morning, a group of women, who Luke will soon identify by name, are on their way to the garden tomb to finish anointing the body of Jesus. They have with them spices that are prepared for the occasion. When they arrive, we are told they make two discoveries. One concerns what they found, and the other what they did not find. What they found is that the stone had been rolled away. This enormous stone, which would have required a team of men to move it, has been moved from its sealed and fastened position. What they did not find was the body of Jesus. When the women entered the tomb, they discovered the body was missing. Now, despite how familiar we are with this scene, let's not miss how painfully shocking this must have been for the women. A few days ago, their teacher and their friend was violently killed. And so I have to imagine, as they are now faced with the empty tomb, their first reaction is even an even deeper feeling of emptiness. First they faced loss, now they are feeling emptiness because of another loss, the loss of Jesus' body. And as they contemplated this missing body, which they fully expected to find, we are told they are greatly perplexed. 
The NIV says they are left wondering. Now, another way we can state their experience is they, they are now in a state of stunned confusion. They don't know what's happened, and neither do they know what to do. They are confused. They're stunned. And while they are in this state of stunned confusion, something amazing happens. According to verse 4, if we look there, two men suddenly appear in shining garments, garments that gleamed like lightning. When Luke interviewed these women, they described the appearance of these two beings as having the appearance of men. But we know they're not men. They're angels. And we know this for two reasons. First, these two beings did not walk into the tomb as the women did. But we are told, behold, suddenly there are two men with them in the tomb. And second, their garments blazed with a dazzling and radiant light. Now think of this scene. It's early in the morning. It's, it's right around sunrise. Just as the light of dawn is beginning to spread. But it is still dark inside that earthen tomb. And so perhaps it is the case that the women are carrying small oil lamps with them into the tomb so that they can see Jesus as they prepare his body for anointing. And with those lamps, there is just enough light to see that the stone platform where Jesus' body had been laid a few days ago is now empty. There is no body. And seeing this empty tomb has caused them to be thrown into a state of confusion. And in the darkness of that tomb, they are reminded of their own emptiness their own fear, because they were without Jesus. When suddenly, everything is awash in a brilliant and explosive light. Two angels reflecting the glory of God lights up the entire tomb. The women, who were just a moment before, were fearful, were confused, are now terrified. Their reaction is typical, and we see it often when angels appear to people. When they see the angels, they bow their faces to the dirt floor of that earthen tomb. Now, when they bow down, they are not bowing down in worship, but in terror, in fear, And in their fear, they hide their eyes. Now, while the women's reaction is typical, what the angels say is not typical. Usually, when there is an angelic visit and people are cowering in fear, the usual words from the angel is something like this, do not be afraid but we don't see that here. Instead, the angels ask the women a question. 
And it is a question that is meant to be a rebuke and a correction. If we look at verse 5, we find their words. And notice, these angels are messengers. And so they are carrying the word of God. And here's the word, here's the question that God would have these women be asked. Why do you look for the living among the dead? The meaning here is clear. Jesus is alive. And so why do you look here in this graveyard? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Jesus will not be found in a grave because he's alive. The angels go on to declare the good news. He is risen, just as he said. But that question, why do you look for the living among the dead? Now, that's a question that continues to echo through the centuries. Because there are people today who continue to look for Jesus among the dead. Here's an example to consider. There are many people who think that Jesus is just one choice among many great religious teachers. And so some will look to the teachings of Jesus and consider them of no important difference than the teachings of Buddha or Muhammad or one of the more modern teachers like Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, or L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology. But there is a great difference between Jesus and these other so-called religious leaders. Buddha, he's dead. Muhammad, dead. Smith, dead. L. Ron Harvard, dead. And so the angels continue to speak today when they ask in this pluralistic age, why do you look for the living among the dead? Here's my point. Only Jesus defeated the grave. Only Jesus showed that he alone was sent by God, and he is God. Only Jesus is risen. Only he foretold that he would be raised from the dead, and he did so just as he said. Here's another example of people seeking life among the dead. Sadly, I'm referring now to those people who celebrate Easter but do not celebrate Christ. It's much like those who celebrate Christmas without celebrating Christ. For many, the observance of Easter is merely a matter of tradition. Consider the people this past week who brought home colorful flowers or brightly colored plastic Easter eggs. And why? Well, for many people, the celebration of Easter is a way to celebrate the passage from winter to spring. We love to have beautiful flowers. We love colorful clothing. But for some, that's all Easter is. 
For some, Easter is merely an opportunity to display flowers and eggs and bunnies. And why? Because they are seen as symbols of life. But notice, or check it, without Christ, all these seemingly religious traditions, they do not herald life, but mark death. And yet how many people will be in their backyards today having their children search for Easter eggs? How many churches will have Easter egg hunts this morning? But how many of those people will be looking for Jesus? Unless Jesus is the focus, every one of those activities, although there's nothing wrong in them themselves, without Christ, it is a celebration of death, not of life. Today, some people will bring flowers to cemeteries. It's an Easter tradition for many to bring flowers to the cemeteries. Have you ever thought how much time is spent beautifying cemeteries? Many cemeteries have beautiful trees, beautiful flowering trees, plantings, flowers, and people bring even more flowers. And all of this, I think, is done to help soften the contrast between life and death. Now, as I thought about our tradition of decorating cemeteries, I thought about the borrowed tomb, the tomb that was originally prepared for Joseph of Arimathea, but lent to Jesus. That tomb is described in the Bible as being in the midst of a garden. You ever think about that? The garden tomb? Why? Well, it may be the case that Joseph, before he met Jesus, thought that with the proper decorations, he could soften death. He could somehow disguise death. There's no disguising death. There is no way to stave off the inevitability of death. All will die. And that is why it is so important to know that there is only one place to look for life. It is from the Creator and the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. For all who believe in Him, life does not end at the grave. The angel is asked, why do you look for the living among the dead? But even for believers, for those who are the genuine followers of Christ, there's still a warning here. As Christians, we need to be very careful that we do not look for the Jesus who was, but for the Jesus who is. Did you notice what the angels said to the women who were searching? He is not here. He is risen. Not he was risen. He is risen because he is risen to be eternally present with each and every one of us. Amen. Jesus is alive. He is present and he is mediating for us at the Father's right hand for us even now. In fact, he is here with us 
Where one or two are gathered in my name, Jesus says, there I am in the midst of them. He is alive, and he is with us now. Praise God. And so when we look for Jesus, we should not, we cannot look for him among the dead. When we look to the scriptures on these Sunday mornings or at our various Bible studies or in your private study of the Bible, we should never look to the Bible as some kind of mere history book. Now, all everything that in the Bible is historically true. But we should not look to the Bible as if the purpose of it is to read about a figure from the past. We are reading about the living Christ who is with us here now. We should not be looking for the living among the dead. He is risen, and he is alive and present with us now. The angels have now admonished the women for their wrong way of thinking, but now they explain to the women why they're being admonished. They now call upon the women to remember. Look, please, at verse 6. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. He must be crucified and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Now the first principle that we'll discern from this is this. There are two important principles. The first one will be this, and it's obvious, and it's familiar. Here it is. Our God is a God who keeps his promises. Jesus spoke in advance. He told his followers in advance, not just once, but three times. We know that from our study of Matthew, that Jesus told his followers, I must go to Jerusalem. And there he said he would suffer. There he would be killed. But on the third day, he would rise again. And because he is a God of promises, we can be assured that those who put their faith in him will also be raised. The second principle is this. When God makes a promise, we must not limit his promises to that which we think is possible. We must always remember, the angels told the women to remember, let us remember what Jesus taught us. He said, with God, all things are possible. All things are possible. And so with Jesus' resurrection from the grave, he has proved that nothing is impossible with God. And we can count on the promise that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It is not only possible, it is assured. It is assured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as he was raised, so too will we be raised. Amen? Amen. 
Let's continue and look at verse 9. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven. The eleven because Judas is now gone. They told these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, and their words seemed like idle tales, and they did not believe them. The apostles were making the same mistake that the women had made. Despite Jesus' clear promise that he would be raised from the dead, the apostles doubted. See how they receive the testimony of the women who come to them bearing this news that he has risen or he is risen. The King James says their words seem to them as idle tales, idle tales. The NIV says their words seemed like nonsense. The Greek word that is used here was reserved for those occasions when somebody is not making sense because they're emotionally distraught. And so the idea that Luke is conveying here is that the apostles have concluded that these women are hysterical. We can imagine the apostles saying, they are so overcome by grief, these women, that they're imagining things. They're saying things that cannot possibly be true. But listen now. The fact of the matter is, it's the apostles who are guilty of letting their emotions get the better of them. Because of their grief, the apostles' grief, they falsely imagined that Jesus did not have the power to do what he promised. And what did he promise? That he would be raised from the grave. And so the apostles are struggling unnecessarily with their own self-inflicted doubt. Now, we may find solace in knowing that Jesus' own apostles struggled with doubt. We may think that if Jesus' own apostles struggled with accepting the resurrection, it's understandable that we might do so also. Now, while our doubt or possible doubt about the resurrection may be understandable, it's not acceptable. Here's why. The disciples were living through events that had never been seen, that had never been experienced before. We, however, have the benefit of hindsight. We have the blessing and the advantage of looking through the lens of all that was experienced by Jesus' apostles and many followers who were eyewitnesses to all that occurred. And we hear their testimony. And we can know that Jesus Christ is risen. Let's see Peter's response, verse 12. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb. And stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves. And he departed, marveling to himself 
at what happened. Peter is not yet convinced about the resurrection. We note here that Peter left the tomb, and he leaves the tomb marveling. He's wondering to himself what had happened. And while Peter is not yet convinced, we can't say that Peter is doubting either. You see, unlike the other apostles who just remained where they were and dismissed the women's testimony as impossible, Peter goes to check it out for himself. He, like Jesus, he arose to go find out what had happened. Peter's investigation says it is possible. Peter is beginning to understand all things are possible with God. Now, I would venture to say that there may be some people here today who are in a similar place where Peter is at this moment. By that I mean who do not necessarily doubt the resurrection, but are not fully convinced of it either. So you may have taken time to check out the scriptures. You know the promise that Jesus would rise on the third day. You may have even responded to the angel's invitation to come, see the tomb, look inside, and see that it is empty. But here's the crux of the issue. Here's where things take a vital turn. I submit that no one, as a result of their own efforts will convince themselves as a matter of our human intellect to convince ourselves of Christ's resurrection. Instead, there is only one way that someone becomes convinced that Jesus is alive, that he has risen, and that is by having a personal encounter with Christ himself. And you can have a personal encounter if you have not had one before. You need to ask him to reveal himself to you in prayer. Not because you doubt, but because you want to see him. You want to experience him. You want to meet him. And he will honor that genuine prayer. Let's go please to 36. As we rejoin the text, we're skipping to verse 36. As we rejoin the text after skipping ahead, we're picking up the account after two followers of Jesus go to the apostles to give them a report. These two disciples of Jesus had left the city of Jerusalem, and they were on their way to Emmaus. They were on the Emmaus road, And while they were walking, Jesus, the risen Christ, the risen Christ revealed himself to the two disciples. At verse 36, the two disciples go to the 11 to give them a report. We've met the risen Christ. We join the text at 36. Now, as these two men were saying these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. And Jesus said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, 
Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Some have minds. Now, we know from John's gospel that the apostles and the other followers are at this very moment hiding from the authorities because of their fear. And so they are locked behind closed doors. But then suddenly there is Jesus standing in the midst of them. He appeared through stone walls, through locked doors. And when the apostles see Jesus, they don't say a word. Obviously because they're too startled, they're too frightened to say anything. They recognize that the figure who is standing in front of them is Jesus, but their minds and their hearts, they cannot accept what they're seeing with their own eyes. Despite the many times Jesus told them, I will rise from the grave, they could not believe what their eyes were seeing. And so they thought they were seeing a spirit. They thought they were seeing a ghost. And so in his grace... Jesus provides the apostles with a personal encounter with the risen Lord. And Jesus gives them two pieces of evidence to demonstrate that he is not a vision, that he is not a figment of their imaginations, but that he is real. Look, please, at verse 39 for the first piece of evidence. Jesus says, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself... Handle me and see, for a spirit, a a ghost, does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Jesus invites them to see the place where the nails pierced his hands, where he was nailed to the cross, where he suffered and died for the forgiveness of our sin. But notice that Jesus does not let them depend only on their eyes, does he? He encourages them to touch him. He says, take hold of me, hold me, touch me, handle me, and see that I am he. Jesus gives a second piece of evidence to the reality of his resurrection. Look, please, at verse 40. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. The second piece of evidence is that Jesus asks for food. But why? Well, it's simple, really. The living eat, the dead do not. And so when Jesus ate with his disciples, it was to demonstrate to them that he is alive. But I will suggest that this image of the risen Christ eating with his disciples has much broader implications. Let's consider one of the most compelling images that Jesus uses to describe the gathering of believers in heaven. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus says there that when the righteous, meaning those who believe in him, are gathered together from the the west and from the east, from the north and the south, he says they will take their places at the feast in the kingdom. 
Consider also these words from Revelation 19. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so there's this image of feasting in heaven. But why do the scriptures tell us so many times over and over again about this feasting of heaven in heaven, this wedding supper of the Lamb? It's quite simple, really. Because the living eat and the dead do not. Those who are alive in Christ, those who have been given eternal life because of faith in Christ, we will live forever to feast on all the blessings of heaven. Today is a day of rejoicing because we know our Savior lives. And for all who believe in him, We rejoice because we know the grave can't hold us either. By his resurrection, he has given us assurance that we too will be raised, that we have victory over the grave. For Jesus Christ is the Lord of life. He is the Savior of our souls, and we know this because he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen? He is risen. Amen. Our closing prayer. Lord, we thank you for this word. Lord, I pray that each of and every one of us would be mindful today of the wonderful sacrifice that you have made. That by your sacrifice, you gave us the opportunity to be cleansed of our sin. And by the resurrection, your resurrection from the dead, we have the assurance that all who believe in you will not perish, but have everlasting life. And for this, we give you our eternal praise. Amen.